You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. And a good and sobering word that is. Uh, If you are new to Stonegate today, thank you so much for being here. It's such a privilege to have you, and uh, we're excited to be able to worship Jesus with you. And we're just praying that the Lord speaks to you today and talks to you today in all sorts of ways that would be good and appropriate in your life. And uh, one thing that would really help us serve you is if you'll make sure you grab the little visitor card right underneath your chair. There's a black side and there is a red side to it. If you need us to pray for you in any way, you can fill out that red side. But if you'll make sure you fill out the black portion of that, uh, if you give us your information, we'll send you some things in the mail this week that will make that worth your while. And, uh, and also it would just really help us follow up with you. So if you would do that for us, we would so greatly appreciate that if you would. And, uh, and just by way of uh, thinking about last week was Easter. And it was such a great week uh, for our church family. We had over 1,100 people here last Sunday um, getting to worship Jesus. Think about the incredibly bright future that Jesus has awaiting, uh, you know, for us. And uh, it was such a great day together. In two weeks from today, we are going to celebrate some of the fruit of Easter and, uh, and really some of just the fruit of the last few months in our church's life as we do baptisms. So that's coming up on May the 7th in two weeks from today. So if you are, you know, a person, that you have met Jesus, but you've never been baptized. We would love to be able to celebrate that with you in two weeks from today. So if you have met Jesus, but you have not been baptized after that, man, let us know that. You can email Jeff Garner at that email address right there. Um, That'll kind of plug you into our system. We'll follow up and we would love just to begin that journey with you. And so if you'll email him, that would be great. We just can't wait for that particular day. It's such a special day in our church when we get to do those. So that's coming up on May the 7th. Okay, today we are back in the set of sermons on the family. Now, why would we do a set of sermons on the family? Uh, Richard Baxter is an old Puritan pastor of a few hundred years ago. I, he, he's basically articulating the reason why it is that we would do this when he says, you know, if you want revival to break out in your community, if that's what you want, and by God's grace, don't we want to see that? Don't we want the Lord to do that in and around us in this geographic area for God to do something that would be extraordinary for revival to actually break out? We want that. And he says, if you want to see revival in your community, uh, that first starts with revival in your home. Like by God's grace, this is how revivals normally go. They start small in a home and what happens repeatedly in a home breaks out of that home and breaks into a community. That's how revival normally is kind of sparked. And and by God's grace, we wanna see that. And if we wanna see this in our community, it starts with you and I embracing our home and asking the question, what does it look like for us to invite Jesus into this home where revival can break out here? So we have been thinking about marriage. We spent three weeks on marriage. Now today we are taking kind of a turn and we're gonna think about parenting. What does it look like for us to be a church who gets the gospel to the next generation? For us to be a church family who embraces that sort of responsibility to get the gospel to the next generation? What does it look like for a dad to embrace their role in the home of a pastor? Dads, that's what you are, you're a pastor. What does it look like for you to embrace that role and then to work with your wife to be the shepherds, you two together, the shepherds of your home? pointing your kiddos to Jesus, pointing them uh, to the remedy of the gospel in their life. What does it look like for us to do that? These are the sort of weighty things that we're gonna be thinking about this week and next. So with that, um, let me start by just kind of addressing one, just one cultural issue that we've gotta get this settled before we can talk about the rest of it. You know, in any culture, part of what a culture does is disciple those who are in it. 
The culture around you is like the invisible envelope that you're doing your life in that you can't even see because it's so innate into what you're doing right now. So it's the thing, the air you're breathing right now is this cultural thing. And that air that you're breathing, the the culture around you, it is always discipling. It is seeding into your heart and my heart, deep thoughts and beliefs about God, about who you are, who God is, about life around you, about every aspect of life, including your kids. And there is one particular uh, uh, seed that our culture plants into the heart of, of most people in our culture right now. It, it just is discipling and planting this little seed. And, and you could maybe talk about it like this. Our culture is peddling this myth and the myth would go like this, that kids, here's the equation, kids equal a burden. That is the cultural belief that, that is just all that's the world you're living in is saying that in a million different ways. And just to show you how good our culture is at discipling us in this, uh, we could talk about a lot of different things. Let me just point out one thing. Um, think about the fertility rate and what's happened over the last 50 or 60 years in America. If you went back to the 1950s, the fertility rate, and that is how many kids are, you know, being, you know, how many kids are women having? Per, per woman, how many kids? That's the fertility rate. So if you go back to the 1950s, the fertility rate was 3.8 children per woman. So your typical family had four kids. That's just kind of the average that you're just gonna walk down the street and see. Typical family has four kids. Now fast forward 60 years to kind of our modern day kind of you know, culture and context. The fertility rate now has gone from 3.8% in 1950 to less than, than not percent, but 3.8 children per woman in 1950s to to now the fertility rate is less than two children per woman, less than two. Now that's a record low for our country right now. So you can just see the mood of how our culture kind of views kids right now. Now think about this just in a, you know, pulling back from that and, and think about the replacement rate. At less than two children per woman, we're not hitting the replacement rate, which would mean that population-wise in America, if something doesn't change, rather than doing this, some sort of a growing population, at less than two children per woman, we are going to start doing this if something doesn't change population-wise. Now, ironically, do you know two uh, different sort of like ways people try to relate to, to God out there, like Mormonism and Muslims? That is not the prevailing mood in those two places. And they are having a lot of kids and those two things are growing really vibrantly right now because of that. So you can just see kind of what's at stake there. But if you wanna sum up the the bottom line of our culture, our culture sees kids as burdens to be endured rather than assets to be enjoyed. That is the cultural ethos that you're living in. Now contrast that with how the Bible sees kids. And the Bible, see, God sees kids as something much different than burdens to be endured, right? That's not the way the Bible sees kids. Um, think about in Genesis 1 and 2, God, in some of his first words to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Do you remember what he looks at them and says? He says, I want to bless you. And I'm going to bless you by saying this, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, kids are going to be one of the greatest blessings that I'm going to gift you as your creator God. This is gonna be a blessing for you, not a burden, but a blessing. Then you get to Psalms 127. 
Psalm 127 is a part of the Psalms of Ascent. So when the people of Israel are journeying toward the temple to Jerusalem, they would sing these Psalms of Ascent. So if you can just picture your family, you're you're traveling down the road, you're heading to Jerusalem to get to the temple to worship God, and and your family's gonna be singing Psalm 127. Now think about what it would mean for for us as a culture and us as a people and you and your particular family to be singing this. Think about what it's communicating to your kids. Think about what it's doing to the heart of a parent as you're singing this on your way to Jerusalem. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the gift of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now here's the question we've got to wrestle with and get settled right now. Do you view children like that? Like an arrow in your quiver, like an arrow in the hand of a warrior. Is that what children look like and feel like to you? Now, I want you to hear me here. I am not, I am not saying every family in here needs to have like 15 kids, but I am saying this. When you see a big family, what's your heart naturally think? What's it naturally think? And if it's anything less than Those are arrows in the hands of a warrior. That is showing you that you are not thinking God's thoughts. And if we're ever going to get like the parenting thing rolling and like what it means to embrace the role of parent, the first thing that's gotta change is we have to see our precious kids like God sees our precious kids like the blessings that they are. In the Bible, it is not burden. It's not children equal burden. It is children equal blessing. This is how God sees our kids. And if that's not the way you see kids, this is, the, this is where we have to start this whole conversation. This is our moment to get before the Lord and to open up our hands before the Lord and to say, God, I don't see kids the way you see them. And God, right now, I'm owning that. I'm confessing that to you. And God, would you begin to change that in me? God, would you begin to help me see kids like you see kids? And can I just encourage you? There's something in you for, for you in that. When you think about what it looks like for you to begin to see children and think about children like God sees and thinks about children, do you know what, what you're gonna benefit from that? How that's gonna work for you? You're gonna begin, as you start to be conformed to how God sees kids and thinks about kids, you're gonna start seeing how God looks at you as his kid. And you're going to go from thinking about God sees me as a burden to kind of tolerate to like God actually sees me as a blessing to him. Like God actually loves me and he loves love. He actually likes me. Like you're going to go from thinking God just kind of tolerates me to God actually enjoys me as his son and daughter. So this is where it's got to start. It's got to start with you and I making sure we are thinking right thoughts about children. And if we're not, let's repent of that this morning. Let's take that to the Lord and ask him to, to restore and to, and to calibrate and to help us see like he sees these things. Now we're ready for Judges chapter two. In Judges chapter two, there's three things I want to point out to you. There is a warning in Judges two. There is an invitation in Judges two. And then there is encouragement in Judges chapter two. A warning, an invitation, and encouragement. First, the warning. First, the warning. What is happening in this passage? What's going on here? Now just think about what's, what's the, the grand kind of scheme of, of what's happening. The people of Israel have come into the promised land. God has freed them from Israel, or, uh, Egypt, and now they have entered into the land that he has promised them. 
you look at verse seven and it says throughout all the days of Joshua, Joshua is sort of the yardstick in Judges by which you can measure the faithfulness of every other leader. He's kind of that guy in Judges that, that gives us kind of the measuring stick. And so throughout all the days of Joshua and all the elders of Israel, those are, those are Joshua's crew, that's his generation. Those are the people who, were, who God busted out of Egypt. They, they experienced walking through the Red Sea on dry land together. They ate the manna from heaven together. They, they experienced all of those things and were changed by those things in some really deep ways. So this is Joshua uh, you know, and, and the leaders of Israel. And while those guys were alive, while Joshua and all the leaders of Israel were there, the people faithfully served the Lord. That's verse seven. Then you get to verse eight. It says that Joshua and the elders died. Uh-oh. That's probably not gonna be good. Then you get to verse 10, second half of verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work the Lord had done for Israel. From that forgetfulness, all hell is about to break loose. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now the Baals and the Ashtaroth that's kind of the female counterpart to Baal. Uh, the Baals were the false gods of the days, kind of the false gods, the idols of the day. So the people of Israel, rather than looking to God for everything that they needed, like we need things that we're gonna depend on and rely on God for what we need. They turned from God and decided, you know what? We're not gonna rely on God anymore. We're gonna go with Baal for what we need. So just fill in the blank. Like we need fruitfulness for our crops. We need fertility so we can have kids. We need safety and security from our enemies. We need just fill in the blank of things. And they are answering the question on where are we gonna get the things we need? Rather than depending on God for those things, they said, you know what? We're gonna go to Baal. He's gonna give us what we need. So they turned from God to worship Baal. Then you get to verse uh, 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, the God who delivered them from Egypt like saved them from slavery, parted the Red Sea, freed them from the Egyptian army, fed them in the wilderness, brought them into the promised land. It's that God that they stick a finger up you know, in the air to and say, we are done with you, God, and they turn their back on God. Then you get to the second part of verse 12. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to those other gods. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Bells and the Ashtaroth. How would God respond to them? Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Anger is an attribute of God, but I am so grateful that it is a provoked attribute of God. We only see his anger flash when we sin and rebel against God and grieve his tender and generous and kind heart. That's the only time we see it is when we do that. And in this passage, they have provoked God. They have sinned and rebelled against him and, and they have grieved his tender and generous and kind heart. And in response to that, he disciplines them, which leads them and plunges them into misery and, and desperation. That's what we have going on in this passage. Now, what do we learn from this? Let me just point out some insights that we learned from Judges chapter two. Here's the first insight that we can take from this passage. Insight number one. Insight number one from Judges two. 
we're always one generation away from all-out rebellion against God, from complete spiritual darkness, and the triumph of evil. We are always one generation away from all-out rebellion against God, from complete spiritual darkness, and the triumph of evil. Now let that just sober us for a moment. Let it sober us. Verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This passage takes us from generation one who were faithful to the Lord to generation two, not generation three or generation five or generation 10 down the line. It's generation one of faithfulness, generation two of forgetfulness and hell unleashed behind it. That's what we have here. This is what we're seeing in this passage. This is how quickly it happens. And that word to know in, in uh, Judges uh, chapter two, verse 10, it probably doesn't mean that they did not know that Israel and their forefathers worshiped the God of the scriptures. They probably knew about the God of the scriptures. They probably knew about the mighty acts that God had done. They had heard about those acts. That word know is not like to know about. It's, it's saying to us that between generation one and generation two, that that, that thing of about God, like not just knowing about him, but knowing God, like not just knowing these mighty acts, but for them to be, be, be enlightening and like important and central to their lives. Somewhere along the way, they lost that sort of knowing that they knew about it, but they just didn't know it deep down in their heart. And when they didn't know it deep down in their heart, they turned to every false God in worship. This is what we're seeing in this passage. When there was a, a generation of collective forgetfulness, hell was literally unleashed behind it. That's verses 11 through verse 15. Hell was unleashed behind it. And here is what we're seeing. Every generation, regardless of how great that generation was, regardless of how well that generation knew God, every generation is always one generation away from generational forgetfulness. Every generation is one generation away from that. That's insight number one. Now for insight number two. Think about this passage as a microcosm for what you see throughout the Old Testament. In this passage, here is, here is the uh, cycle that you see, and you see this repeated throughout the history of Israel. Here's the cycle. The people of, of God disobey God. So they just get out into flat out disobedience, God comes to them, they provoke him. So God comes and disciplines his children. He disciplines his people. That leads his people into misery and ruin and just a sense of desperation. And in that desperation, eventually, after a lot of bloodshed, they cry out to God and then God delivers them. And then the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now that just begs the question, why in the world is that? Why is that cycle repeating over and over again in the life of Israel? What is going on here? Here's the insight. Why do we go from, you know, obedience to disobedience and discipline so, so quickly? Here's the insight that we see here. The reason for that is we're born ready to worship Baal. That's the reason. It's because we're born ready to worship Baal. We're born ready to forsake God and to go after every substitute of God. We're born ready for that. 
Every generation is born ready for that. Your generation was born ready for that. The one coming after you, the one before you, everyone in those generations were born bell worshipers. This is how we're born. This is, this is the makeup that we have when we come out of the womb. So think about it like this. All generation one, marked by faithfulness, Joshua and the elders, all generation one had to do for generation two to fall on their faces and worship false gods. All generation one had to do for generation two to do that was, hear this, nothing. Generation one, the only thing they needed to do was nothing for generation two to be bell worshipers. Now that is showing us something deep and profound about the human heart. That is showing us something that we all need to come to grips with. And here's what it's showing us. That east of Eden, our hearts have all been darkened by sin to the point that when we come out of the womb, we are not spring-loaded to love and worship God. We are spring-loaded to rebel against God and worship every substitute for God. That is how we come out of the womb. We have, because of Genesis chapter 3, and our first parents biting into that forbidden fruit and introducing sin into the world, it has, it has darkened every human heart so that we have lost our native love of God and worship of God. We lost that native love there and trust there. And now we have a native distrust and even hatred toward God. Listen to how one guy commentates on this. He says it this way. We are born both adorable and criminal. Do you think about your little baby like that? They're adorable and a criminal all at the same time. We typically grow up to be fairly nice people, but the truth is we are nice, evil people. And we prove it again and again and again. Our precious, adorable children are born ready to worship Baal. Our darling adorables are tomorrow's pagans. Every parent, every church needs to come to grips with that. That is how we come out of the womb, with a heart so dark that we are not tomorrow's worshipers of Jesus. We are tomorrow's worshipers of Baal. That's how we come out. When Augustine, probably the church's greatest theologian, when he was trying to talk about original sin and how we are born with a darkened heart, when he was trying to describe that, he just said, just look at kids. You don't have to be a genius to look at kids and see this. And he even went on to say, just to paraphrase, he said it like this. He said, if a kid, you know, a, a newborn baby had the capacity and strength, they would not cry for milk. That's not what they would do if they had the capacity and the strength to do something different. If they came out full grown, grown what they would do is they would put their hands around the neck of their mom and they would demand that milk. He's saying, this is, this is how a human being is born with a heart that is that dark and that ready to worship Baal. We come out of the room, womb not loving God, but distrusting God. We come out of the womb not open to God, but completely closed to God. That is how we are born. That's how you were born. That's how I was born. That's how we're all born. Everyone east of Eden was born with that sort of darkened heart. We're born ready to worship Bell. That's the second insight. Here's the third insight. The third insight goes like this. Because of that, because we're all one generation away from all-out rebellion against God, from complete spiritual darkness and the triumph of evil, because, because we're all born bell worshipers, here's the third insight that this passage shows us. Every generation has to be re-evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Every generation has to be presented with Jesus and they have to encounter Jesus in a personal, fresh way. Every generation. And as soon as we have a generation that doesn't do that, Judges 2 happens. This is why Judges 2 happened. One generation did not meet God like that. The parents did, but they didn't. We cannot, as parents and as the generation above, we cannot assume that the next generation will love Jesus. That would be a terribly wrong assumption. We can't assume that the fresh way God met one generation will be enough for the next generation. That would be a terribly wrong assumption. We can't assume that the faith of one generation is going to somehow automatically appear and grow in the next generation. That would be a terribly wrong assumption. I love how D.A. Carson says it. He says it like this. When we assume the gospel, we are one generation away from denying it. That's what happens in all of our assumptions, right? And this is what this passage is showing. Joshua and his generation experienced God. There was a deep, vibrant relationship with God among Joshua and the elders of Israel. But that was not enough to get the gospel into the next generation. Why is that? But why is that? It's because every generation comes out with a dark heart. And unless they meet Jesus in a fresh and personal way, Judges 2 will happen. Think of it this way. This passage is showing us what will happen, not what might happen, if we adults are okay with, with our kids kind of passing through life and, and doing kind of life, being okay in life without entering into a living, breathing, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Judges 2 is showing us what will happen, not what might happen. Now, here is, here is point two. So this is the warning. Point two is the invitation. The invitation. So there's a warning. Here's the invitation. Now, the invitation is not as clear as the warning. The warning is like, pops off the page. It's really easy to see in this text. The invitation is not so easy to see. But I want you to think about the Bible as a whole for a second. Embedded into practically every warning in the Bible is an invitation that it doesn't have to go that way. Doesn't have to be that. Think about the story of Jonah. Do you remember his story? God comes to him and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. And he was a very reluctant prophet who went after much bloodshed and much you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He gets to Nineveh. He walks into the middle of the city. It's a pagan city. Think New York City. And think Jonah walking into the middle of New York City, landing on uh, Times Square, him getting a microphone and him announcing to New York City, in 40 days, God's gonna kill you. Not exactly a seeker-sensitive sermon. It's not exactly the way it went down. In 40 days, you're dead. And you know what happened in Nineveh in a completely pagan city? From the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, they repented of their sin. They came back to God and God rescued them. And in verse 10 of, Jeremiah, or of Jonah 3, here's what we read. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Rather than destroying Nineveh, he blessed the people of Nineveh. Now that informs the way we should read every warning in the Bible. Virtually every warning is embedded with an invitation from God that is saying, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, in 40 days you're gonna die unless you repent and come back to me and you can be spared. So why don't you take the invitation? 
See, it's informing the way we should see warnings in the Bible. And that's how we should see Judges 2. There is a warning in Judges 2. This is what will happen when parents take their hands off the wheel and do nothing. This is what will happen. But it doesn't have to be that. You don't have to have that result. Something could be different here. And here's the invitation of Judges chapter two. The invitation goes like this. Embedded into Judges two is this invitation. It's an invitation for the church of Jesus Christ to stand between the next generation and the God forsaking ruin that their hearts want. That's the invitation of Judges chapter two, for the church of Jesus Christ to stand between the next generation and the God forsaking ruin that they come out of the womb wanting and desiring. Now that invitation right there is like welcome to the job of parenting. That is what you are doing as a parent. You are standing in between your kid and what their heart naturally wants when they come out of the womb. And you are the parent who is looking at them and saying no to that. You didn't have to be that way. Don't worship Bill. Let me let, let, me let you see what it looks like to be engaged with a God who loves you and that you're created for. Let me show you that God. This is what you're doing as a parent. If you are a parent or an aspiring parent in the room, hear me on this. Your kiddo is a beautiful image bearer of God. They image God. They were made for God. They were made to love God and to enjoy God forever in heaven with him. They're made for that. That is, what, that is part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. They were made for that. Your kid has a soul that is going to live forever, either with God where they were made to be or in hell where they were not made to be. Man, I just, when I think about that in my kids, man, my heart just kind of breaks thinking about that. I mean, just let that sober us for a moment. This is the image bearer child that God has entrusted to you. And here's the problem. That little image bearer comes out of the womb not liking the God they were made for not wanting the God they were made for. They, they come out of the womb mistaking the God that they were made for as an enemy. They really think he's the enemy that needs to be killed, not the God and good dad that needs to be loved. And as a parent, our job is to model, to stand in between them and that desire for hell and to stand in between that and say, no, let me show you what a rich, deep, vibrant love of God looks like. Man, man, let me model this for me. Let me teach you about Jesus. Let me teach you the Bible. Let me teach you what you were made for. This is what it means to be a parent. This is what God has entrusted to you. This is what God is doing in you. The mission field of a parent starts right there in the crib. That's where it starts. Right there in the crib. When you bring that little baby home, you are on the mission field. You have got a dark-hearted bell worshiper right there in the making. And God is saying, I want you to stand in the gap so that they can worship me one day by my grace. This is what your job is as a parent. The Bible over and over again shows that the primary link, I hear this, the primary link between one generation's vibrant love of Jesus and the next generation's vibrant love of Jesus. The primary link between those two generations is the parent-child relationship. That is the primary link to transfer a deep, vibrant love of Jesus. So this is the job of a parent. This is the invitation of a parent in Judges 2. Now, let me press this one step further. This isn't just the invitation to parents. This is also the invitation to the church of Jesus Christ. 
It's an invitation for everyone across this room to embrace this sort of a generational burden. Part of what Judges 2 is showing us is that God wants not just us as parents in the room, but us as a church to embrace, to feel a responsibility to get the good news of Jesus, a rich, vibrant love of God into the next generation that we would embrace that as an entire church family. This is why I love a sermon like this, because ultimately it is equally applicable to a 23-year-old single lady who has no kids, as it is a 40-year-old mom or dad who has four or five or six or 10 kids. It's equally applicable. God is looking at us all and saying, I want us all to feel this sort of responsibility to make sure the gospel gets into the next generation. I want us all to feel that and embrace that. Yes, the kids in our church. Yes, the kids in our neighborhood. And yes, the kids in our community. Not just the kids in our little family, but all the way out, church, neighborhood, community, that God would help us all feel a deep burden and responsibility to make sure the next generation has Jesus. Now, that confronts what I think is alive in most of us. And what is alive in most parents is a very meistic way of viewing the world. And here's the meistic way of viewing the world. I'm just gonna kind of circle the wagons around my family. And as long as my kids know Jesus, as long as they kind of develop some skills in life to kind of be okay in life, as long as they do that and they're okay, then the world's okay. Now, I want you to hear me. If that's your mindset, as long as my kids are okay, we're okay. If that's your mindset, that mindset grieves the heart of God. Because this is not just a parental thing. God is looking at the church and saying, I want you to embrace a responsibility to make sure the next generation has Jesus. I want you collectively, single, empty nester, mom and dad, kids all around you. And I want you collectively to embrace that burden to make sure they get the, the gospel. Now, this is why we do baby dedications the way we do it. When we do baby dedications, we do a responsive reading. Let me read one part of what we read when we do baby dedications. It's just an affirmation of this, that yes, we as a church family, we are on the hook for this. This is what we read. We believe that raising godly children is a church-wide command. This is what we as the congregation are saying to our parents. And in this holy moment, you as parents and we as your church family covenant together to redeem the next generation and to be faithful in handing down the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, by God's grace, I'm just praying we as a church would embrace that. That wouldn't just be words on a screen, but that would be deeply embraced in every one of our hearts. You know, I was just thinking last night about people who are outside of Laura and I's immediate family system. So they're outside like the Hobbs and the Christian, that's Laura's family's you know, clan. They're outside of that. I was just thinking of, of how many people we have had jump in with us in between our kids and the ruin their hearts want and just wave the flag for Jesus and model a deep, a vibrant love of Jesus and look at our kids and say, don't worship Baal, worship Jesus. I mean, how many people we've had do that? Um, we were just driving uh, just the other day and one of our kids looked at me, screamed from the back seat and said, dad, when are you gonna take mom out on a date again? When is it? Could it be soon? And I'm like, it probably should be soon. Yes to that. And, uh, and they said, great. And, and, and when do you take mom out on a date? Will you make sure that we get to stay with Nini that night? Now, Nini is Janie Pizzini. And Janie Pizzini is a lady at our church. She planted with us. She's here from day one. And do you know what Janie Pizzini has done for us? 
She has functioned like a surrogate grandparent in a lot of ways. She's just owned our kids with us. Man, she's jumped right into the middle of, of that gap and looked at our kids in various ways and just said to our kids, don't worship Baal, worship Jesus with me. Man, I'm so deeply grateful. We've had so many families across this church family do that. Um, I was just thinking last night uh, when we uh, go to Kimmel Park, it's not a foreign thing to hear our oldest daughter, Hannah, say um, when we pull up to Kimmel Park, th this is the park Kyla took me to one time. Kyla is an 18-year-old. She's a senior this year. Last year, she was a volunteer in our children's ministry, and she was one of Hannah's small group leader in our children's ministry. And she just invested into Hannah's life. Every week, she's going to meet Hannah up there and just wave the flag. Hannah, don't worship Baal. Worship Jesus with me. Let me show you what that looks like. Every week, she's just doing that and investing in to our precious little daughter. And then periodically, she would call Hannah, and she would take her to the park and do something with her. Just, just, that's a 17 year old last year saying, I, I'm in for this. I'm going to embrace what it looks like to feel a responsibility to make sure the next generation has Jesus. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, think about right now, we have 40 or 50 adults in our, in our children and preschool ministry, another 30 or 40 in our youth ministry that every week are looking at our kids and saying, man, don't worship Baal. Here's Jesus, let's worship Jesus. They're standing in that with you. This is what a church is intended to be and intended to do. We're all intended to feel the communal responsibility to make sure the next generation knows and loves Jesus. And just one simple application of this, if, if you're not serving right now, I, we, we've said this multiple times recently, the best place to evangelize in our church right now is in our preschool and children's ministries. They're pagan worshipers right now on their way to loving Jesus. And you get to be a part of doing that, of God using you for that. You get to be, what, what better way could you use your Sunday morning than that, right? So if you're looking for a place to serve, jump in there. There's multiple adults doing that right now, this morning, serving our kids in that sort of a way. If you're single or you're an empty nester, kids are out of the house, man, what would it look like for you just to feel the responsibility of someone's kids, Maybe that's in our church. Maybe that's a single mom. Can you imagine how hard that is? Picture a single mom trying to raise three or four kids. I mean, what would it look like for you to feel that responsibility with them, to invest your life into them, to help them, to stand in that gap between their kid and their sinful heart and to say, let's worship Jesus together. What would it look like for you to embrace those things like that? And, and let's just feel this for a moment. There is going to be a day where we stand before Jesus and Jesus is gonna look at us and say as a church, did you embrace that? Did you embrace that calling to make sure Jesus was presented and, and in the next generation? And gosh, just how foolish we're gonna look in that moment if we've neglected the very kids that we have professed to love. That's the invitation. Let me finish with the encouragement. The encouragement. We need to see this passage in the larger context of the Bible. And when we do that, we know that this passage is not saying, hey, you know what you really need? You need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of muster up some new willpower and do a little better in life. That's not what it's saying. We know because the larger context of the Bible, it tells us this, that when we become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the Spirit indwells us. 
So now as a Christian, we get to lean on the Spirit. We get to depend on the Holy Spirit as He is empowering new steps of obedience, as He is empowering repentance when we fail as parents and as a church. He is empowering a, a willingness to go new places with God, a new openness in our, in our life with God. He's empowering all of those things. So we know that we have the great advocate and helper called the Holy Spirit. We have Him in us to help us do all of this. And we know that the Bible spreads before us magnificent promises to encourage us in this. We've got the Spirit of God in us and these promises. Let me just read a few of these for you. Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon who? Upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord. Man, wouldn't you love your offspring, your descendants, our church's descendants to say that? Man, here, here's who I am. I'm the Lord's. Another one of them. They'll call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. That's who I am. I'm the Lord's. The name himself, by, and he will name himself by the name of Israel. And don't we want that for our descendants here? For the next generation here? I mean, that they'll write on their hand, I'm the Lord's, that's who I am. Isaiah 54, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. That's what the kingdom of God is one day gonna look like. Zechariah 8, verse five. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. That's what a gospel-believing church should be. A place where that's happening. Acts chapter 2. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, but is it just for you? No, who else? And for your children, and for all of those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Second Timothy three, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. I just couldn't get away from that phrase last night. Do you know one of the reasons Jesus is really precious to me is because of who I learned it from? That when I think about Jesus, I think about my papa who just modeled and would tell stories about the Lord's work in his life. I mean, I think about my mom and dad. I think about my pastor growing up. I think about my student pastor growing up. I think about Stuart Skelton when I was in college and 21 years old, living in a dorm room, drove every Sunday night to do a Bible study to teach five guys in a fraternity house the Bible. I think about Stuart Skelton, these precious men and women of God. It was said of C.S. Lewis, one of his friends, that he was the most thoroughly converted man that I ever knew. And part of what makes Jesus so special is because I learned him from thoroughly converted men and women. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood, this is Paul to Timothy, from how from your childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let that encourage you if you're a single mom. We know very little, if anything, about Timothy's dad, but you know who we do know something about? His grandma and mom, who both had a vibrant faith. And if you're a single mom, just know this. That single mama produced Timothy. Timothy. That's what, that's what happened right there. So let that encourage your heart. And for all of us as a church, may we embrace this calling to make sure the next generation loves Jesus. And for every parent in the room, hear me. You can make a difference in the life of your kid. You, God has gifted you and called you and equipped you to make that sort of difference. You can. John Patton, I'm going to finish with this. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, current day Vanuatu. It was, it was so hard for him. They produced incredible fruit, but it was such hard work they did. When he first got there, his wife and his newborn son died. He experienced one assault after another from the native people on the island. It was just so, so hard for him. And one of his biographers is just looking at him and asking the question, where did his courage come from? Where did that courage come from? And do you know how the biographer answered it? Here was his first answer to the question. It came from his dad. And when I read his, his autobiography, his talk about his dad is worth the entire book. And he talks about the difference his dad made, that his dad's normal ritual would be to eat dinner and go into this sanctuary closet, this little room in their house, and just cry out to the Lord for everything, just to pray for everything. Right there where his kids could just overhear it all. And listen to him talk about the difference that his dad made. Though everything else, this is John Patton years later talking about this. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory. If everything else were blotted from my understanding, my soul would still wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. It's where his dad would go to pray. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God, they would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal. If he, my dad, walked with God, why may not I? How much my father's prayer at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and, on, uh, and, and uh, all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, and here's what it produced. We all, his 11 kids, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior. And we learned right there watching my dad and we learned to know and love God as our divine friend. May it be for all of us parents. Let's pray together. And when I read that, my heart just screams out, oh God, make me a dad like that. Make me a parent like that. God, make us a church like that. 
And we'll just let the Spirit impress upon you the things that would be most helpful for you today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful for you this morning. And just ask the Lord to clarify, what, what is it that I need to receive from you right now? And here is where, here is where all of our parenting, here's where, this is where all of our approach to the next generation starts. It starts with us being parented by God. It starts with us recognizing that we came out of the, the womb dark-hearted toward God. We came out bent on our own ruin and destruction, but God himself intervened. He stepped in between us and our destruction by sending his beloved son, Jesus, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved on the cross, to be raised from the dead on the third day so that the way back into relationship with him could, could be had so that we could actually become his sons and daughters. And it's right there in you and I becoming sons and daughters of God that we can then actually model what a deep, living, vibrant relationship with God looks like. Oh, Father, would you please minister to us in this moment? God, would you please show us what it looks like to come under you and to experience a deep, vibrant relationship with you, our good, good daddy. God, would you remind us even now that we really are loved by you, that you really are our dad. God, would you show us that? And for anyone in the room who hasn't taken that decisive step and plunged their life in with Jesus, God, may this be the moment. May this be the moment that they take that decisive step. If that's you right now, that decisive step in turning from your sin, hurling yourself upon the work of Jesus for the first time and saying, God, I am trusting Jesus. And when you do that, he will draw you in and make you his own. Man, may that be you right now. May that be you. And I know that in this room, there are countless of us in difficult relationships right now with our kids. Or maybe we're a child and it's a difficult relationship with our parent. We are here this morning at that prayer table, right at the back of the room. We would love to pray for you if that's it. I'm gonna be back there. We would love to minister to you and pray for you. If you need Jesus for the first time, if you need for the first time to say, I want God to be a good, good daddy. We would love to pray for you right there. So as we sing, why don't, you, why don't you come and make your way over and we would love to minister. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.